why don't we open up to Hebrews chapter 11. As promised, we will continue to go through this area of scripture known as God's hall of faith. And we're fascinated about the people who are in there, both because of those who, it's a no-brainer why they're in there. And the guy we're looking at tonight, no-brainer. And also, too, a character that we'll look at Sunday who is really a head-scratcher. How did she make it in to the Hall of Faith? And that's what's so cool about this chapter is that we can take some time and look at these characters and find out why they're in there. And um, so as we've been going through this, we're going to do a quick little review on a couple of verses. Hebrews 11, chapter 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And we've talked about that as we've looked at this scripture I encourage you to kind of write in your margins there. The faith is the substance or the realization of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and you can add yet, because that kind of completes the thought there. Not seen yet, things that were up and coming, things that are, were in their future, these, these characters that are listed in this chapter, they had the faith and knew that things were coming, but they just weren't there yet. They had the realization, as we talked about Noah in two parts, he had the realization that this is happening because the Lord told him to build the ark, that vessel of salvation that was going to save him and his family. And then after it was completed, guess what? The animals started showing up. That was a realization like, this is going to happen. But the faith started way back when he was told to start building the ark, and he got busy and started doing that. And then the animals showed up, and it was like, wow, this is really going to happen. So that was Noah. We had fun with him. Tonight, we're going to jump over to verse, let me find it, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. His bones. How do your bones feel tonight? Creaky and I, my body's been aching. And I know I've been not feeling too good, but man, my body's just, I feel shot out. And uh, maybe I'm getting old. But um, I just, you know, kind of feeling that. Uh, aches and pains and that sort of thing. But he's going to talk about his, he, he's given instruction concerning his bones. Fascinating to find out what that's about. Well, we're going to, and we're going to get our introduction to Joseph back in the book of Genesis. So let's go all the way back to the beginning there. And while you're turning back there, back to Genesis chapter 37, while you're getting back there, I will just ask the Lord for his blessing. Father, again, we do thank you for this time and this, this, uh, this building, Lord, that you've given us. And uh, that we can just come here and gather and, and just worship you, Lord. And Lord, that song, We Exalt You, Father, was just, uh, just a, a lovely song to sing to you, Father. We do exalt you. And, and that's our prayer, is that you are exalted in our hearts, Lord, even tonight, even this moment. And may you get all the honor and glory, Father, for everything that you do for us, Lord. Bless your word tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. We're introduced to this guy, Joseph. Uh, 
in chapter 37, um, about a quarter of this book is devoted to this guy, this guy Joseph. Chapters 37 through 50, all the way to the end, is devoted to this man, Joseph, who has incredible integrity, a man of integrity. And that's the perfect word to describe Joseph because what does integrity mean? Integrity means doing the right thing even when nobody's looking. And that's exactly what Joseph did, if you know the story. We'll take a, a couple, uh, we'll take a look at a couple of different areas in Joseph's life right there at the beginning. Um, but a couple of things to point out. Joseph is a picture of Jesus. He's one of two Old Testament characters in the Old Testament that there's no mention of sin. The other would be Daniel. And as you look at Joseph and you look at his life, the parallels and the lines that draw right to Jesus are unbelievable. They're uncanny. So when you're looking at the life of Joseph as, as we read these things, there should be some recollection. There should be some lines drawn in your mind about, ooh, that's just like Jesus. So maybe we can point some of those out as we get going. Chapter 37, verse 1, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them, of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph. Now Jacob and Israel, those two names will be interchanged. They'll be used interchangeably in these chapters, as we'll see. But that's what Jacob means, Israel. Uh, and so that's who we're talking about here. Now, Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than all his children. Is that okay to do? Can you have favorites? I don't know. I, have, I see a head back there. <laughs> and she would know. She's got a lot of kids. Uh, that's probably. But that's, he was his favorite. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors or also could be interpreted as many pieces um, many pieces sewn together this, this tunic. And the, uh, the history of this is kind of interesting because it's believed that this, this coat or this tunic of many pieces or colors had sleeves. And in those days, uh, you know, it was more vest-like because people were working around, you know, plowing and machinery or equipment, if you will, and animals, and sleeves just kind of got in the way. The sleeves were for guys who were the bosses and the foremen. They ran the jobs, guys in charge. And this young kid, 17 years old, he gets the coat of many pieces with sleeves. Interesting. Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, Joseph, he goes on and he has these dreams. Do you remember these dreams? They're pretty cool. The dreams, he's like, guys, I had this dream. What? You know, you can just, you can almost just, as you're reading the story, you can kind of hear the older brothers just like, you know, looking at him like, what now? You know, oh, yeah. I mean, we were gathering sheaves and all of our sheaves and all your sheaves bowed down to mine, to me. Are you kidding me? Get out of here, you dumb kid. And uh, so they're binding sheaves in the field, and he says that. He says, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. 
And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Does anybody remember anyone whose brethren hated him and asked that same question? We don't want you to rule over us. Does that ring a bell? See, these are the, the lines that are drawn. Jesus, same thing. His brethren didn't want him to reign over them either. And his brothers said to him, oh, excuse me, verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. That doesn't sound smart. Hey, I know you didn't like that last dream, but listen to this one. He had another dream, told it to his brothers, verse 9. Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Boy, this kid's something. Man, what's going on in his, in his mind? Verse 10, so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Interesting. The brothers, of course, they got mad again. You dumb kid. Gosh, you think we're going to bow down to you? What? What is going? And then the father's like, he rebuked him, but he kept it in mind. It like stuck with him. It's like, what's going on here? Why would he have these dreams? So he kind of pondered at that. And so he goes on to say, um, Verse, let's go down to 14. And he said to him, please go and see if it's well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, this is Joseph, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, um, what are you seeking? So he said, I'm, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they're feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dotham. Now look at this, verse 18. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. So they see him coming from afar off. And even then, that's when they start thinking, okay, you know what? They start conspiring. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's just kill him. His brothers. Wow. Your own flesh and blood. I mean, okay, you know, beat him up a little or, you know, whatever, push him into a tree, but kill him? I mean, that's pretty brutal. Well, you guys know the rest of the story. Reuben says, well, hey, no, no, hang on. Let, let's just, you know, let's just kind of, um, let's hide him. So they find a pit. You guys know the story. And they, they put him in the pit and they just kind of hide him. And uh, one thing leads to another. And these guys, they see these Ishmaelites coming, these traitors. And they said, let's just sell him. And then we'll we'll take his coat and we'll... We'll, we'll present it to dad and say, hey, you know, uh, you know, they poured some blood of a kid on it, and they, they gave it back to him, and they just said, we don't know. Is this the jacket? That, is this the coat of your son? And, of course, you know the story. Jacob was just heartbroken, heartbroken. Yes, that is. And, of course, they put blood on it to make it look like a wild animal had gotten him. Well, in the meantime, he was basically sold into slavery sold into slavery to these Ishmaelites who were then on their way to Egypt. And you guys know what happens then. He gets sold to, again, to a man named Potiphar. But backing up a little bit, he was betrayed. Betrayed by his own brothers. Not only was there a conspiracy to kill him, 
But then he was actually sold, betrayed, sold for, you know, some silver and, and sent off to be a slave uh, in Egypt. So betrayal. And, you know, betrayal is, uh, it's a hard thing. Perhaps you've been betrayed before and you know what that feels like. This guy probably felt that at a level that probably none of us have. Betrayed at, you know, at the utmost. Completely, totally betrayed by his own brothers. Sold into slavery. Well, he gets to Egypt and a man by the name of Potiphar, captain of the guard, captain of, the guard of Pharaoh, he, uh, he ends up acquiring Joseph. And it says there that he is completely, his household is completely blessed because of Joseph. Jumping over to chapter 39, he'd been taken down to Egypt, verse 1, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites and had taken, who had taken him down there. Verse 2, and the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority. Isn't that neat? So the brothers betray him, sell him into slavery. He ends up uh, going to Egypt and of all people, this very powerful, prominent man, acquires him, buys him, and takes him to the house. But Potiphar sees something in this guy. And over observing him and watching him, determined that, wow, the Lord is with this guy. And he puts him in charge of his whole house. And it's really cool as it goes along here, verse 5. So it was from that time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had. And the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Isn't that neat? So the Egyptian's house is blessed because Joseph was there. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph's sake. And that's what happens with you and me. We have integrity if we love the Lord. And we're not doing a good job just when the boss is around and he sees us. Oh, the boss is here. Okay, work hard. Look good. That's not what we're doing. We're working hard. We have integrity. We're doing the right thing, what the Lord asks us to do. Why? Because we're doing it as unto the Lord. That's who we're doing it for, is the Lord. Now, the boss, those around us, they benefit because of that. They're blessed because of what you are doing with a pure heart, doing what you're doing as unto the Lord, which is exactly what Joseph was doing. It all comes back to integrity, which describes Joseph to a T. As we continue to look here, verse 6, And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. He doesn't even know the extent of his own finances. He just comes home from a rough day at the Pharaoh, captain of the guard, whatever they're doing, and what's for dinner? You know, I mean, that's all he cares about because he doesn't have to worry. How freeing for him, right? Comes home and, hey, I don't even have to worry about the details because I have so much trust in Joseph that he's got it. Nothing happens in this household unless it goes through Joseph, and that's it. 
So you got a problem? Talk to Joe because I'm going to go watch some TV with my bread. Okay. He, he, it's freeing. He's, he's fine. He can come home and he just knows Joseph has it. That's the level of trust that he has with this guy. Now that's how the Lord had blessed him. Now verse six, um, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And now here's where some trouble starts to surface. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is uh, with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has in my hand, uh, to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Sin against God. Not sin against Potiphar or sin against you. No, he says, how can I do, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? And that is what's so cool about this because... Um, God was with Joseph every step of the way, every day of his life. He was there when he was out wandering in the fields looking for his brothers. He was there that when he was on his way and the brothers saw him, they were conspiring to kill him. He was with Joseph down in the pit when he was hidden. He was with Joseph when he was with the Ishmaelites and got betrayed and going to Egypt. He was with Joseph when he went to Potiphar's house and was being raised up and being trusted by this man. And Joseph was aware of that. He had this awareness of God's thereness. Do you guys know that? Do you guys feel that way? Are we aware that God sees us every second, every moment of our life? Do we feel that? Do we sense that? Because if we did, we might not get into so much trouble in certain things right? And Joseph, he avoids it. He's like, I, I don't want to sin against God. God's right here. He sees this, right? How could I do this wickedness in front of him? Verse 10, so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day, verse 10, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. He ran for his life, literally. Got out of there. Must have been a busy time when the guys, the, you know, the other servants or whatever, they were out and about in the fields, perhaps, whatever. It just happened to be one of those weird times where no one was around. And Joseph comes in to, to do his uh, business and uh, do the things that he was um, you know, delegated to do. And boom, there she was. And boy, she was just on him and grabbed him by the garment and you know said lie with me and he did this matrix move and got out of that garment and out he ran literally just okay did everything he could to avoid her because he didn't want to you know fall in this way it was wickedness in his eyes well now in her anger and in her hand she has evidence right Verse 13, and so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called the men of the house and spoke to them saying, see, he has brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. 
He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came uh, in to me to mock me. And so it happened as I lifted my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So she has this story that she's made up, and it's, you know, it's got to be somewhat believable because there was only two people in the house, his story against hers. He's the servant. She's the wife of a prominent man. Who's going to be believed in this? Verse 19, so it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, your servant did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused. Now, it doesn't say that he was mad at Joseph, though. It says his, his anger was aroused. And I've, always, I've read this story many times. I've thought, I'm like, well, yeah, no doubt. You know, the guy comes home, and of course, who's he going to believe? He's going to believe his wife. But, you know, something like this, an offense like this, would have been a capital one. This would have brought the death penalty immediately. And what ends up happening? It doesn't say that he, his anger was aroused at Joseph and he grabbed him and took... You know what? It doesn't say that. It says his anger was aroused, which is interesting because what he did, he said, verse 20, so Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. doesn't sound like death row. And he was there in the prison. Almost wonder... Did he kind of know maybe there was some tendencies with Mrs. Potiphar? That maybe she wasn't always like faithful or perhaps on the up and up? He was probably angry and his anger was aroused because now I'm painted into this corner. I have to do something because if I don't, you know, your story is believable even though I don't believe it. Have you ever been in a situation where there's an accusation against somebody that you know very well, and you know now, no way. That goes directly against that person's character and the way they operate. Have you ever been in that situation? I have. And you know now, that's fishy. But the story, it, it, there, there could be some truth. You're just kind of, mm, no. And I have a feeling that's where Potiphar was. Here's a guy who I trust with everything. My finances, everything to the, the very bread which I eat. I have no worries. I come home and I know Joe's got it. It's under control. And now all of a sudden, you got to wonder. Because if he believed it 100%, he would have taken him right down to that, prisoner, that prison and had the executioners do what they do immediately. right? But instead, Joe ends up in the the uh, king's servants portion of the prison. Maybe they get ice cream at night and a big screen TV. I'm not sure, but it doesn't sound like death row to me. But the Lord was with Joseph, verse 21, and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Again, this guy can't lose. He can't lose. Everywhere he goes, he's raised up. He's blessed. And he even goes to prison and here's the keeper of the prison uh, seeing something in this guy, like, wow, what is it? And gives him responsibilities. And you see how he just kind of rises to prominence anywhere he goes. 
And the, com the keeper of the prison committed, verse 22, to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority. He wasn't a micromanager. Because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. He just had this way about him that there was just this trust, this integrity, and it just oozed out of him. And everywhere he went, someone saw something in him and was like, you know what, I'm going to have you lock up the prisoners tonight, or I'm going to have you feed, or I'm going to have you, you know, and whatever it was, it came to Joseph, and he rose to prominence. Well, of course, you guys remember what happens. This couldn't happen. In fact, he couldn't decipher or interpret Pharaoh's dream if he hadn't have gone to prison. You guys remember the story. The butler and the baker. The butler and the baker, they get into some sort of issue or problem with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's anger is aroused towards them. Those two guys get sent to prison. The same wing, if you will, that Joseph's at. And these two guys come in, they, go to, they get thrown in prison, Pharaoh's mad at them, and they both have dreams. One of them dreams something, and you know they, they both wake up, and Joseph sees them, and he sees their countenance, and he asks them, hey, why are you guys sad? Well, the butler says, hey, look, this is what I dreamed. You know, I had this dream, and you know, within three days, and, and the, the whole, he tells him the whole dream, and Joseph interprets the dream for him perfectly. And it made so much sense that he's like, really? Basically, he tells the butler, you're going to be restored to your position in three days. And it made so much sense that the baker's like, oh, hey, I had a dream too. Oh, yeah, really? What was your dream? Well, I, ha I had a dream that I had all these baked goods. And they were on my head. And as I went, though, uh, these birds came down and they were eating all the bread out of my basket that was on my head. And Joe goes, uh-oh. You know, he's thinking, I'm going to hear something good like the butler did. I'll be restored back to my, my position, you know. And it was like, no, sorry, buddy. You're going to lose your head in three days. Wait, what? Are you sure? Sure enough, it came true perfectly. Three days later, the butler is brought back into his position, back to Pharaoh's palace, and old Baker got executed, right? And so that worked out perfectly. But Joseph said, hey, butler, hey, um, don't forget me. When you get into the presence of Pharaoh, remember me. Don't forget me. Okay, no problem. Two years later, he did. We jump ahead. Chapter 41. Now, this is where the, it gets kind of fun. Chapter 41, verse 1. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, we like fat cows. And they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking fat cows. Oh, so Pharaoh awoke. Wow, that's a crazy dream. Standing by the river and 
you know, of course, the, the river I'm sure they're talking about is the Nile, which was their number one economy. And uh, standing by the river, and out come these fat seven, fat giant cows, you know. And then as they're there, now here comes these seven ugly, skinny, nasty, sickly-looking cows, and they go stand by them. But then the skinny ones end up eating the seven fat ones. But it, they don't look like they have eaten. Even after that, it, they look still sickly and gaunt. And it just wakes them up out of a dead sleep, like, whoa, what was that? Verse 5, he slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up one, uh, on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Man, what, what is going on? What did I eat? Did I eat something weird? Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh saying, oh, hey, I remember my faults this day. Remember when you were mad at me? Remember when you got really mad and you threw me in prison? Remember how fun that was, probably? Um, yeah, I, while I was there, there was this guy, and we had a dream, and he interpreted my dream perfectly. He told me that I'd be restored to my position in three days, and guess what? You brought me back. Well, who is this man? Well, it's Joseph. He's in the prison. And so they go and they say, well, Pharaoh, uh, verse 14, sent and called for Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon and shaved him, gave him a change of clothes, cleaned him up a little bit, and came to Pharaoh. And verse 15, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. And so he goes in and he goes and he tells him this dream. Verse 25, jump down there. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one, and the seven thin and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven heads of famine will arise and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will, be, will not be known in the land because of the famine following it will be very severe. Seven years of plenty. Plenty that they could never even have imagined more crops than you can imagine, more grain, more corn. And so he, he has this, uh, this dream, and f basically Joseph nails it. It's such wisdom that he can't even believe it. Verse 34, let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep the food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land in the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt and the land may not perish during the famine. 
So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the spirit of God is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. What? Are you literally telling me that an hour ago I was in a dungeon, in a prison, forgotten about for two years? I do this, this deed that only the Lord could have allowed me to do. <clears throat> And which is interpret this guy's dream. Hey, buddy, don't forget me when you get into the Pharaoh's palace. Gotcha, bro. Two years later, what were those two years like? Could, I mean, could you imagine? He must have felt so stuck, abandoned, forgotten about again. Here we are again. Betrayed a bit. You ever been in a place where you just feel stuck? You're just like, ugh, what's going to change? Is there any, any change coming my way? And then, boom, out of the blue. Hey, Joe, Pharaoh wants you. Huh? Yeah, shave, clean up, maybe shower, throw these clothes on. You can't go to Pharaoh looking like that. And he goes into the, and within an hour, he is in second in command of Egypt. How is that possible? Only the Lord, only the Lord. Again, Joseph being raised up to prominence, second in command, only second to Pharaoh in this land. And he goes about, he travels around Egypt, and he is in charge, man. Nothing happens without Joe saying it. And the only one who could stop it would be Pharaoh himself. He goes around, he travels, and he begins to establish this uh, this. Um, ability to uh, acquire corn and grain, and a fifth of it goes to um, the reserves because they're building up. And all of this mass um, produce and, and this productivity, all these years of productivity that was happening, if they hadn't known what these dreams meant, they would have just lived a lavish life. And then all of a sudden, when the seven years of famine hit, they would have been devastated and wiped out. God completely, totally used this man and put him in position of prominence and literally saved millions of lives, including his own family. Because you know the famine went throughout the land. When the seven years of, of prosperity were over, then all of a sudden, here comes reality. Here comes the seven years of famine. And slowly and surely, the nations around began to feel the pain of this. But Egypt had lots of food. And word got out that Egypt had lots of food. And so as this famine began to affect surrounding countries and nations, guess what? People started coming to Egypt. And they began to want to buy uh, grain and corn and, and those sorts of things. And so as they did that, they realized, wow, we need to go to Egypt and guess who does? Finally, Jacob looks at his sons and goes, why are you standing around looking at each other? Can't, don't you see what's going on here? There's a famine. We have no food. Why don't you go down to Egypt and buy us some food? And so that's what they do. Lots of story happens between here and where we want to get. 
but the gist of the story is that uh, Joseph's family ends up getting completely saved because of the provisions that he gave to Joseph, the knowledge, the interpretation of these dreams, and then the ability to be able to stock this stuff up into silos and, and be able to come, and as these, these starving nations were coming and saying, look, we need to buy grain, we need to buy corn, and they were, they were able to completely be uh, supported and taken care of. Joseph's family comes, they get saved by them, and you guys know the story. He does, they come before Joseph, and Joseph looks down at them, and he recognizes his family. He recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him, but he, he gets all gruff with them. <clears throat> you know, inside, he's got that tickle in his throat where he's like, oh my gosh, they're my brothers. And he's happy to see them, but he, he plays tough, and he goes, uh, you, you guys are spies. You've come in to see the weakness of our land. No, 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 that's not true, no. You know, and so he sends them off and he says, listen, I'm going to keep this guy. Go get your father and bring him here. And they all end up caravanning 66 complete total of 66 people in the family. They travel all the way to, to Goshan, uh, part of Egypt, and that's where they end up residing. And Joseph goes before Pharaoh and he tells them, these are my brother. This is my family. It's a really, really neat story. They come and they, and, and Pharaoh says, go bring your father to me. And, and so he does, he brings his father in and, and there's Jacob standing before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh looks at him and says, how old are you? And he says, I'm 130 years old, you know? And it's really cool how he says, you know what? Joseph, give your family the best of our land. They get the best, not the, the border or the, the, the side of the, the land that nobody wants furthest from the Nile. No, they get the best, most fertile property, the fertile, most fertile land that they can possibly get. Why? Because Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph. Joseph's done a great job. Integrity, raised up to power and prominence again. And guess what? The Lord was with him the whole time. That's what's so important to understand here. The Lord was with him right next to him. Those times of despair, those times of betrayal, those times of feeling like you've been forgotten about, all of those times, Joseph was awareness of God's thereness. He knew it. And he says, I'm not going to do this wickedness before our God. I'm not going to sin before God. I'm, I'm here. And he, he was a man of integrity, doing the best that he could before the Lord, as unto the Lord. And he was rewarded greatly. Not a sin is mentioned. Now, we, obviously, he's a man. He's a, a human being. He sinned, of course. But the picture of Joseph paints the picture of Jesus, how Jesus was abandoned, how he's been forgotten about, how he was betrayed by his brethren. You won't rule over us, Right? and say how Joseph took care of his family. Well, his dad finally passes away. Jacob passes away. Jump over with me a couple of chapters, and we're going to get to the part that I'd like to share with you. Jacob calls his sons in, and he blesses them in chapter 49. And... 
at the end of uh, chapter 49, verse 33, and when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now Jacob had given an instruction to Joseph and says, bury me with my family back in our land in Canaan. And so verse uh, one of chapter 50, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants and physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. And they, they grieve and, and all of this stuff happens. And you know, after dad dies, the brothers get together and they go, uh-oh, um, now that dad's dead, um, Joseph's going to want to get us for what we did to him. And, you know, all those years of guilt had probably been wearing on them. And they said, hey, now that dad's died, um, jo Joseph's probably going to want to come after us and kill us. So, so what they tell Joseph is, uh, <clears throat> so Joseph, before dad died, he told us to tell you to, to promise not to kill us and, and to not hurt us, you know. <laughs> and Joseph just says, guys, fear not. Don't be, don't worry. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. And he says, look, I'm not going to hurt you. Um, look there with me. I want you to see this. Verse 19 of chapter 50, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring, about, uh, bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. You see how God ended up saving a ton of people, but he used one man in order to do it, but that man had to endure extreme hardships. See, he, Joseph didn't know the whole story. Joseph didn't know that as 17 years old when he was running out to his brothers and they were conspiring to kill him and then they threw him in a pit and then sold him into slavery. Oh, this has to happen because someday I'm gonna be second in charge of Egypt. Yeah, good, so I'm glad this is happening. That's how it is with you and me. We go through all these problems and this problem hits us right smack in the face and we don't go, oh good, I'm glad this is happening because in five years I'm gonna be able to talk to them when they're going through this and then, that, and then all these people are gonna get saved and it's gonna be, that does not happen because we don't know what God has in store. We don't know his whole plan. He doesn't give us A to Z. He gives you A, you step out on A you wait two years or more. Then he gives you a B. Then he gives you, he doesn't just lay it all out for you because we would panic. We would freak out. Joseph didn't have it all laid out for him. So what did he do? He just knew that God was with him and he trusted in the Lord. And he, had a, he was a man of integrity and he did exactly what he was supposed to do righteously as unto the Lord and trusted in God because he loved the Lord and God took care of the rest. God said, I can use that and I'll raise you up to uh, prominent positions everywhere you go. If you're in the palace of Potiphar, if you go to the dungeon or if you go to the palace, 
of Pharaoh, second in command of Egypt. No matter where you go, I will raise you up, and you be a man of integrity, and God will see, and people will see me in you. You'll reflect me. How neat is that? It's encouraging because when we go through problems and issues that we can't see our way out of it, I know that God's in charge. God's got me right in his hand. I have an awareness of God's thereness. I know he's right with me, by my side. He didn't abandon me. Joseph's brothers abandoned him. The butler gave him a thumbs up. Gotcha, bro. And he kind of forgot about him. But God was right there with him. That's encouraging. I love that. Verse 21. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones, he says. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Isn't that cool? These guys did all these evil things against him. They abandoned him, sold him into slavery, all this evil stuff. But at the end of the day, at the end of life, at the end of the chapter, he spoke kindly to them. He says, hey, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your little ones. It's all good. And here he is at the end of his life. And Joseph was able to see, verse 23, Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So pharaohs and you know rulers and men of prominence back in Egypt they had pyramids built for them and and you know these uh, temples and and all of these uh, places of memory where their their bodies were Joseph no none of that he's just in a coffin somewhere but he mentions his bones and that's what we read in chapter 11 of Hebrews his bones take my bones with you. what what is the deal here He says, I know God's going to visit you. God will carry you up out of here, and when he does, carry up my bones from here. That's fascinating. It's an interesting thought. As we close this out tonight, we're going to jump over to 1 Thessalonians. Go there with me, if you would. Well, I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself. Go to Exodus. Exodus chapter 13. verse 19, and they do exactly that. They remember the oath. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. This was important. This was important to Joseph. Jumping over to 1 Thessalonians. 
First Thessalonians chapter four. Uh, let's go to let's go to verse thirteen. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen. Paul's saying here, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, or other words, have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, those who have passed away. He says, I don't want you to be upset about those who have fallen asleep or those who have passed away. Have you lost a loved one? I have. I've lost two very close loved ones. And some of us in this room have. I mean, a lot of us have. We've lost them, and we, we feel that pain. We, he goes, I don't want you to be ignorant, but you know what? Hey, when the Lord comes back for us, he's bringing them with us, with him. We're going to see them again. And I, I look and I think about my sister who passed away, and I think, man, I miss her, but she's in heaven. She is in heaven right now. When, when her when her cancer got her to a point where her body could no longer function and, and her body died, her spirit went to heaven into a, a place where no time exists. No time. It's, we're in this time-space continuum where we feel past, present, future. We feel the, the sense and the urgency of time. We're always worried about time, not enough time. And you're like, Riv, you're running out of time, so hurry up. I know. But, you know, we feel that. We feel that. You know what? My sister is in heaven. She has no sense of time right now. None at all. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. I will get to see her again someday, and I rejoice. And Paul says this, verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What? The dead in Christ will rise first? You say, well, I thought if they died, they're already in heaven. Yeah, their spirit is. But... The dead in Christ will rise first. Now let's read on a little bit. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This is the rapture, guys. This is the rapture. This is Jesus coming back for his bride, his church. And when he does, he brings with him, those who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ with him, but it says there very clearly in that verse, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That means the bodies of those who have passed away before come out of the graves to meet again. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. But something about this tells me God has a plan. He wants those bones back. Yo, what about guys that died 400 years ago and they were Christians? Don't know. The decay, those bones, that, there's nothing left. To God there is. Those molecules exist. And somehow, some way, they mean something to God because they will come back up. Just like Joseph said, take my bones with you because God's going to visit you 
God's going to visit our descendants in Egypt, and he's going to deliver you. And we read in Exodus 13, that's exactly what happened when Moses f- delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. Guess what? They grabbed Joseph's bones. Why? Because Egypt is a picture of the world. And this world someday will be destroyed by fire. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And there's something about God says, nope, that's coming up. Those bones and that stuff, that's all coming up. The dead in Christ will rise, and then we who are alive will go up and meet with them. This world's going to get destroyed. And Egypt's a picture of the world. We've mentioned that many times before. And Joseph's like, that's not my home. Joseph said, that's not my home. I will die here, and my bones will be here. But I know the Lord is going to meet you. He's going to visit you. He'll deliver you. And when he does, take my bones too to the promised land. Isn't that cool? This isn't my home. This is just Egypt. I was kind of in bondage here, even though he was in second command and did very well there. But that's not my home, he says. I belong in the promised land, the one that was promised to our father Abraham and to Jacob, right? That's where I belong. Just like you and me, this is not our home, this world. Look around, guys. We don't belong here. We're pilgrims passing through. Our home is heaven, and Jesus is coming back for his bride. He's coming back for you and me. And when he does, those bones that are down there and those sunken ships and then those graves, that's all coming up too. We're all going out of here because this world will be destroyed, and he's not going to destroy that along with this world. It's a cool picture. And that's a line that gets drawn directly back to what Joseph's saying here. Now check this out. Therefore... Comfort one another with these words. We're talking about the rapture. We are a pre-trib believing church, folks. We're not mid-trib. We're not post-trib. People will say, well, no, uh, I believe the church will, um, you know, live halfway through the rapture and then we'll, and the, or no, after the rapture, you know, or after the tribulation, uh, the, you know, then we'll be, no, we're pre-trib. And we can point to areas in Scripture all day long where that's true, and this is one of them. God does not punish and kill the righteous with the unrighteous. He never has, he doesn't, and he never will. And why would he start here? Paul says, when talking about the rapture, it's exciting. We're fired up about it. We're looking for his second coming. We can't wait. We feel that that urgency in our hearts. And Paul says, hey, when you talk about it, comfort one another. With these words, when you're talking about the rapture, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back for you and me. We get to rise up in the clouds when we hear that trumpet. Dead in Christ rise first, then we get to go, and he's taking us to heaven. That's exciting. Comfort one another. Now, would it be comforting if you're hurting and you're upset and you're, you're forlorn about whatever is going on in your life, and I come up to you and I say, don't worry, brother. It's all good. Don't worry, because think about this. One day, we will be running for our lives. You know, because the Antichrist, I mean, he's going to be, he's going to be haunting us down, and he's going to have everything at his fingertips, all the technology and the power, and he's going to have the armies and forces in place to hunt us down as Christians, because we've, we are Christians and we haven't taken the mark of the beast, because we know we can't. 
So don't be upset about what you're going through. Don't worry because we got awesome things ahead of us. We're going to be running for our lives. And because we haven't taken the mark of the beast, guess what? We won't be able to buy anything. So we can't eat. We'll be starving. We can't buy food. I can't trade or buy anything uh, unless I take that mark. And I know if I take that mark, I'll be eternally damned. So we can't do that. We're going to be running for our lives. And then if the, uh, the Antichrist forces do catch us, they'll force us on our knees and they'll have us bend over this block and say, hey, take the mark now or off with your head. And we know, okay, no, off with my head and we'll be beheaded. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that great? <laughs> Does that sound comforting to you? That's exactly what you want to hear when you've had a death in the family. Or when you, uh, you know, can't pay your bills and you're really going through it. Don't worry, bro. Yeah, we're going to be running for our lives. No. Paul says comfort one another with these words. What ones? The ones where Jesus, hey, you think it's bad now? It only gets better for us. It only gets better for us. It's bad now. Yes. And when we talk about tribulations, those are... Trials and tribulations Jesus promised we'd go through. Not the tribulation that is clearly marked in Revelation 6 through 19. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. Yeah, we have trials and tribulations, but we comfort one another with the words that, hey, brother, listen, Jesus is coming back. 